a fair and balanced uh, narrative has been ongoing. Welcome to Always Real Talk. I'm Kwame Brown, and in the studio with me today, I have my good friend and my mentor. He's a native Washingtonian. He is actually an author. He is an entrepreneur. Uh, but more importantly, he's a father, a grandfather, and what? Hmm, a man of faith. My good friend, James Brown, welcome to Always Real Talk. Kwame, first of all, I'm thankful that you would have me on the program so that we can talk again, Real Talk. Hey, absolutely. Now, let me ask you a question. How are things going with you today? Welcome to Always Real Talk. I'm Kwame Brown, and in the studio with me today, I have my good friend and my mentor. He's a native Washingtonian. He is actually an author. He is an entrepreneur. Uh, but more importantly, he's a father, a grandfather, and what? Hmm, a man of faith. My good friend, James Brown, welcome to Always Real Talk. Kwame, first of all, I'm thankful that you would have me on the program so that we can talk again, real talk. Hey, absolutely. Now, let me ask you a question. How are things going with you today? You know what, Kwame? It, it is all good. This is, well, these are unprecedented times. Um, and it's a forced shelter in um, process that we're all engaged in. There have been some good takeaways from this. Number one, recognizing that in my life, I probably, in terms of being busy, have majored in some minor things, unnecessary things. So I'm hoping that coming out of this, I will eliminate those things that are really unnecessary and focus on the priority things. Number one being family. Uh, I'm enjoying that because I get to spend more quality time with my family, realizing the depth and the gifts and talents that they have that too often in a rushed fashion, you look, you overlook that, Kwame, and heaven's life goes by pretty fast. So I'm enjoying it too. I'm getting an opportunity to spend more time reading. Uh, you know that I'm uh, an ordained minister, so a lot of that is in faith literature as well, and it's blowing my mind. Uh, and three, my grandkids, I'm only able to do FaceTime with them right now because I'm trying to, again, uh, be very obviously observe the precautions, if you will, but I want to pour into them as much as I can as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to, as one, it's good to hear that you and your family are doing well. And I, I pray that that continues to, to, to go on as we continue to pray for our whole, I would say, world, right? Because this is something, an epidemic that's it's everywhere, right? Just not here and in the United States. Um, I want to jump right into something that's going on right now. The question I had was, does the media have an, an obligation, plus these, some of us that are a minority in the media, to help create a narrative that's balanced. Sadly, Kwame, the effort towards having a fair and balanced uh, narrative has been ongoing and continues. Uh, and that's certainly the job of us, those of us who are in the media, to work aggressively at that. And we have been, but here we are in 2020 and we still have to chase after those things. Uh, the Colin Kaepernick narrative has certainly been one that's been ongoing. Look, if I were to answer the question from the standpoint, um, should he have had an opportunity to play? Unquestionably. Many coaches will say they were doubting whether or not he still had the utility and the ability to continue to contribute. The real question is, should he have been given the opportunity to do that? And I think that's fair. Uh, number two, many people run away because of exactly what he was uh, pressing forth. Understanding that he, Kaepernick, and others 
sought out what was the best way to make their point and to be given a suggestion that kneeling was the way to do that um, and then to bring it to a larger audience so as to force some, some conversations to approach equanimity, if you will. Look here, protest is certainly the vehicle which many have used across the racial spectrum to try to force a conversation so that people can understand. Uh, too long, the narrative has always been forced on people of color. That ain't right. Here in the country, we have to be very clear on these narratives, and these narratives drives people's opinions, and sometimes people of color uh, are, are just not happy with how they're being portrayed versus people that do the exact same thing. But I, I want to move... Numbers, though, Kwame, I mean, even as the NFL um, is dealing with an issue right now in terms of the paucity of people of color represented, not only in on-field decision-making positions, but in the front office. And hurtfully to me, that harkens back to the Al Campanis interview with Ted Koppel back in 1987. Why is it that there are no black managers, no black general managers, no black owners? Well, Mr. Koppel, there have been some black managers, but I, I, I really can't answer that question directly. The only thing I can say is that you have to pay your dues when you become a manager. Yeah, but you know in your heart of hearts, and we're going to take a break for a commercial, you know that that's a lot of baloney. I mean, there, there are a lot of black <laughs> players, there are a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities. You really believe that? Well, I don't say that they're, they're all of them, but they certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it yeah, but I mean, you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not well, really um, cut out. You remember the days, you know, they hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, what I'm saying, so it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Koppel, because uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, so it, it just might be that they they. Why are, are black uh, men uh, or black people not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Oh, I don't, I don't, I, it, it may just be that they don't have access to all the country clubs and the pools. Where he revealed, he being Al Campanis, that that was a reflection of the attitude that many had and still do, that African Americans cannot be effective in positions that involve decision-making, uh, bringing cerebral dexterity uh, and have to the table. Of course we can, but why is that still an issue in 2020, Kwame? And an old business expression is, you cannot expect what you don't inspect. Mm. So teams are really serious about increasing real fairness and equal opportunity. Simply look at the numbers, and the numbers have to be reflective of an attitude more than somebody stating what their belief is but not following through in actuality with what the numbers look like. That's the bottom line. So one would want to, I think, in any organization, be comfortable that the attitude internally, that there's not implicit bias there, no matter what you do in terms of removing something physically.
Well, that's why I have, you know, so much respect for you because you never shy away. You always speak the truth to power. And that leads me to uh, something else that's important to me and clearly important to you, and that's domestic violence. Uh, I've been someone who have changed uh, many laws uh, to make sure that women that are abused, especially with kids and not kids and domestic violence anywhere, is not acceptable. And you have also been at the forefront. Uh, I remember, and I'll show a clip in a second, where you was on national TV. I was sitting at home, and this is what I saw. You'll take a look at it, and I'll get your thoughts. Here we are again, dealing with the same issue of violence against women. Now let's be clear, this problem is bigger than football, but wouldn't it be productive if this collective outrage, as my colleagues have said, could be channeled to truly hear and address the long-suffering cries for help by so many women? And as they said, do something about it, like an ongoing comprehensive education of men about what healthy, respectful manhood is all about. And it starts with how we view women. Our language is important. For instance, when a guy says, you throw the ball like a girl or you're a little sissy, it reflects an attitude that devalues women. And attitudes will eventually manifest in some fashion. Women have been at the forefront in the domestic violence awareness and prevention arena. Millions of women in this country are. Consider this, according to domestic violence experts, more than three women per day lose their lives at the hands of their partners. So I want to go back. I mean, there you are. On, and it was touching to me and it was touching to so many people that I know. Uh, you know, why is domestic violence, as you mentioned, still an issue? And, you know, why did you feel it was so important to be that vocal and that straightforward? I think it was palpably clear to me after spending two years of working in that environment. And let me give credit to a, um, uh, a woman, uh, Monica Hawkins, with whom I pursue a number of business uh, opportunities with. She was the one that made me aware of how significant this issue is in general, and yes, even more so in the African-American community, um, that men treat women like chattel. I'm not saying that's the case in general, but when you look at the fact that 87%, I may have said it in that piece there, 87% of the perpetrators are men. Um, and it seems like it's been wired unnecessarily so, like from a biblical standpoint, I look at it as Ephesians 5.25 says, which says, husbands, love your wives. And I know that there's people who are not married, uh, who are living together as well, and women are still being treated badly. Kwame, it touched me to the core. When I would do some research on this, in the two years I spent advocating uh, about raising the level of domestic uh, violence so as to speak to men about understanding what healthy manhood is all about, because the way you treat your wife is a reflection of what you think about yourself. So as bad as the numbers are towards the victims, it speaks poorly on the low self-esteem uh, on a part of men. And that's just calling it straight. And uh, you know what, look, Kwame we're, all, Kwame, we're all in this together. We're supposed to be uh, effective contributors toward uh, strengthening our communities. And women have always played a significant role in that. And if a man is unwilling to examine himself to see how he's dealing with and treating with love and care and affection, uh, a significant part of, of one's household, then shame on him. 
and that that's what needs to be done. So, and it's very rare that I've given commentaries on TV, but that one hurt me. Call me when I went down to the domestic violence hotline center in Austin, Texas, and next door to that building, there's one that deals with teenage uh, women domestic violence. When I had the headset on, listening to the women pre predominantly who listen to these phone calls coming in and the kind of environments that they're living in and getting nervous and men are physically abusing them. It, I, I took the headset off and I cried and went over to the window. Well, it can't just be me feeling that I need to be passionately advocating on their behalf and how much the situation is exacerbated now in the edicts about sheltering in place because of the coronavirus and how much more tragic the situation is. And I just pray that we'll actively engage in God bless you for the passionate role that you took as a legislator to address that issue, Kwame. No, no, thank you. And like you said, my heart now, and this is always real talk, so we always keep it real. As we have this coronavirus, there are so many people who are stuck in a house that they know with an abuser, right? There's so many they can't leave because they can't go anywhere. They they were going to work was a place of shelter for them, right? Now they are stuck there and they can't do anything about it. There are young women that are stuck at home with some uncle that they normally go to school to get away from. There are a lot of underlying issues uh, that we want to have to deal with now and when we come out of this coronavirus. And your work and your speaking up and your leadership, as I watched primetime TV uh, deal with the issue that was so important, uh, is, is definitely be the commended. And I want to go and end with this, this book. Right. It's this book that I that I, that I like uh, and it's called the I want to get it right. The role of a lifetime. Now, I read a bunch of books and uh, I normally read uh, one of my uh, heroes that I, that I follow all the time, Reginald Lewis. And mm. I read it and there's things in his book and I read it every year. Right. Because there's something in it that's inspiring me. Of course, I read the Bible every day, but I read that book every week, um, every, every year. But your book something in it and it's called scholarship mentality mm. and scholarship mentality sticks with me because and i'm gonna let you talk about your book uh you talk about your life you talk about your family you talk about your faith and not only do you talk about it not only did you write about it but i have witnessed firsthand that you actually live it which is more important than any other thing that you could talk about. But why did you, how did you come up with the scholarship mentality? Wow, you really did dig into that. That, um, that was a real problem coming out of being a recruited athlete on scholarship and how the public can give you a sense of you know, entitlement because everybody is throwing roses at your feet. They're treating you like you're royalty, etc. One can get a false sense of comfort um, and complacency associated with that. Uh, I remember when Petey Green, when uh, God bless him, when I was on his radio and TV program, and he made me aware. This is after I had been cut by the Atlanta Hawks in my attempt to play professional basketball. I was drafted in the fourth round by them. And when I got cut, I came home, hide, uh, cried, hid in the house. And I was, you know, seeking advice from people about what to do in terms of career pursuit. And I remember talking to Mike Trainer, 
who was the attorney for Sugar Ray Leonard and Glenn Brenner of uh, late of late Channel Nine fame many years ago as a leading sportscaster in the area. And I said, hey, I'm trying to understand if I take a risk and leave corporate America where I'm working and go off to try this broadcasting thing, how do I make sure that if it doesn't work out, I can come back and have, if you will, a safety net to know that I can get back in such and such. And I love this candid advice. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, you're guilty of having a scholarship mentality. You want everything guaranteed that if you try and pursue uh, option A, if it doesn't work out, you're guaranteed that you can go to option B. Life doesn't work that way. The only security you have is in the quality of the talent that you bring to the table to be able to successfully go after something. There are no guarantees. If you want it badly enough and you prepared well enough for it, then you go after it. And that's when I went after it in terms of getting a job after auditioning to become the then known Washington Bullets analyst and was touched by that potential career pursuit and invested myself in it because the lesson I learned when I got cut by the Atlanta Hawks was I didn't work as hard through college to continue to grow. And that goes back to an axiom that my old high school coach, Morgan Wooten, God bless him, said, there's no such thing as standing still. You're either getting better or you're regressing. So I didn't get better in college. And I knew at the pro level I could play. But that was my fault that I didn't continue to sharpen myself to go higher. So I wanted to prepare. My mantra coming out of that experience was, I will never let an opportunity. That's how they came about. So I got rid of that scholarship mentality, Kwame. Well, I always remember uh, something that you said as it relates to scholarship mentality. You said, if you bring value, everything else will show up. And no. as something that I, I've lived by for so long, right? You know, if in fact you bring some sort of value, people respect value, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, whether you're in business, whether you're in sports, if you're a valuable part of a team that can't, that has to be there, you will be there. And uh, I wanted to thank you, you know, for, for saying that because it's, a, it's something that I live by. Mm. Yeah, you know, Kwame, that's so awesome. And, and again, what I've learned in my business life in corporate America, there are some fundamental principles uh, that create a strong work ethic. And as I've grown, especially in my spiritual growth, I realize I tie those to a biblical foundation. So with respect to work, we all have a boss here on earth and you better make sure you're bringing some value to the table just like we will have a boss ultimately that we'll have to stand before as well but i wanted to make certain that i was bringing some value to the table and a lot of it starts first with your attitude what kind of attitude do you have and my attitude was that with respect to a scriptural foundation again that colossians 3:23 uh says do all that you do heartily or excellently as to the lord and not unto man so if I'm doing my job to please the Lord with excellence in whatever I do, I can't help but please my boss because I'm going to go beyond the call of duty. There were some business men and women at Xerox I worked for, Addison Barry Rand, who was from D.C., one of the most senior business executives in corporate America, Kent Amos, and others who said, understand that your philosophy has to be rooted in understanding that in any job, you've got to do the job. You've got to meet the expectations. But then there are a number of things on the other side of the ledger 
called the subjective criteria that could bounce you out of the door. And one of those things is showing that you have a team-oriented attitude that because it's a rising tide that lifts all ships and that we're all a part of the team. And if no one is concerned about who gets the credit, then the team will rise. So those are just some of the tenets that I learned in that regard because even though we're so hung up in America on that which divides us, race, social status, you know, the isms, genderism, you know, racism, sexism, all of that stuff. You know what? There is more that brings us together. And we can see the differences that we all bring to the table and not react in a bigoted, myopic mind frame. Understand that everybody's bringing a gift to the table. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse um, 16, it says, looking at the human body as the example, it's one body with many different parts to the body. And all of those parts are to work together for the effectual working of the whole body. So that's how we ought to be looking at things. And that's when you've got a successful organization that can't be stopped, Kwame. Absolutely. I mean, as we can see, your faith is the driving factor in everything that you do. Uh, every question that we've asked, you've tied your faith uh, to that question in a way in which that's how you live your life. And that's what's, you know, very special uh, about you. There are a lot of people that are, that are out here that, that talk about it, but they just don't walk it. And they don't, you don't see it manifest themselves in the questions that you ask them. And, but for you, it's a, it's a big difference. And I, I want to say how much I re respect that. Um, as we, you know, come to a uh, close here, you know, there are a lot of people that are, are, are suffering and athletes, whether they race the coronavirus, there are athletes that they are now saying, some say that are living paycheck to paycheck. And they've said that ever since I was a little kid, right? That you have athletes that end up living paid and everyone doesn't get paid up front, right? They don't get the guaranteed contract up front. And these are hard times for some of them. What advice would you have for those young uh, student athletes that are trying to make it to the next level and those that do? Is there any advice that you can give them that they may not find themselves in maybe the same situation that some athletes are finding themselves in today? Wow, and that is a loaded question, which is a topic in and of itself for examination. I, know. I, I knew it was loaded, but I was... <laughs> and I'd love that if we could do that one day as well, too. But the key is, look, let's be clear. This, the seedy side of the business is that you will have many of these predators out there who are looking only to capitalize on the future earnings of these athletes. To the degree that athletes, before they even become anything, if they've got some quality people in their circle, and a lot of times it's right there in the household, or if it's a family growing up and they've got a, a friend, an uncle, a close family friend who has walked the talk and shown an expertise in the areas of common sense, how to manage the money, how to be planning for the future because nothing is guaranteed in the present. Those are the kind of people that you need to keep close. Look at what LeBron James did. He had a lot of his own friends who he made certain and they did to become skilled at what they were doing and he's running his own show. I don't care what you may think about him, but he had his close. And, and you know what? One of the challenging things is to see how Many people will show some implicit bias because they'll talk about the guys who are around LeBron or anybody else who is bringing value to that relationship, not hangers on, not those who are draining you of your money and doing that, but those who are close friends who have grown up with you and shown some degree of intelligence 
and hustle to grow in personal development. They call them a posse. Why do you have to call them a posse? That's reflective of a mindset that is not accurate as opposed to these guys bringing some genuine skills to the table so that they can move on and dictate their own future. So have some good quality people around you as opposed to some fast-talking agent who comes in. But even when I gave you that, that little axiom, you can't expect what you don't inspect. Look at that agent's record. How many people has he helped to become self-sufficient down the road with the kind of money that they're making? And the agents aren't the jack-of-all-trades. You want to invest your money with some other people who have done a great job who you can look at their track record because you run the show. Too many times the agents will hijack or usurp authority saying that they are the key to everything and that just, excuse the vernacular, that just ain't the case. So be well-grounded and smart for what you're looking for long-term. Tommy Amaker at Harvard says he's trying to train people to be successful and it's something along the lines of let's look at the 40-year game plan, not just this five-year game plan of success right here at this level. Are you going to be as successful off the court, off the field, as you are in terms of what you're doing on the field? Well, let me tell you, uh, I want to, you know, thank you. I know we had a small amount of time to spend. You took time doing, you know, you know you're so busy as you're ramping up, you know, CBS. You got a lot of things going on. I want to appreciate and thank you for taking time to, to talk to us. But, I, you know, as a native Washingtonian to another native Washingtonian, I got to say how, how real you are and how real it was. It was a, I was watching one of your interviews. And my good friend, our good friend, Rock Newman, asked you a question. He said, <laughs> what, is the, what is the greatest basketball team in the area? And I'm going to tell you, I thought you were going to say DeMatha. I mean, I, I, I sat there and said, why would he ask him a question like that, right? And I sat there and you said McKinley Tech. was, And I said, that's what I'm talking about right there. You know that he's straight native Washingtonian when he, he speaks truth to power and he's real. Because, you know, most people would have just said the math. I mean, I, I was expecting the math. You said McKinley Tech. Well, there's no question that DeMatha has had, I believe, the most storied history in terms of success in basketball. But in the years that Rock Newman was referencing, there is no doubt in my mind, and it was not meant to be politically correct, to be politically, you know, um, um, palatable or any of those things. That was the truth. Those guys, look, ball players know who can really play and what the team was. And back there in that 68, 69 era, McKinley Tech was flat out, hands down, one of the finest teams anywhere in the country. DeMatha has had a long story career, and I'm proud to have gone there and proud to represent a number of those athletes, to be clear about that. But that's <laughs> calling that. I mean, I'll also close. First of all, we can take as much time uh, when you want, period, because, again, you keep it real. And oftentimes people don't get to hear my thoughts on those kinds of things as well, too. But I'm a proud native of Washington, D.C., and I want to make certain that this isn't about me. This is about us and everything that I do. And I've tried my best. I've made my mistakes. Even in the book that you referenced, uh, The Role of a Lifetime, I wanted to share the good things and the faults that I had in making some mistakes as well, too. I often talk about, and my daughter gave me credit to talk about this, the ability, rather, to talk about this, the latitude. You know, I had my daughter out of wedlock, and I did not want to be a statistic as another brother out here making a baby but not being responsible as a father. And I'm so proud of what she's doing now, married to a nice 
Christian young man uh, with four great kids who are being educated first and foundationally about understanding the Word of God, the Bible, which is the inerrant Word of God, because that's going to ensure success, not just here, but eternally. Who wants to go and spend eternity in a smoking environment as opposed to non-smoking? So that's my little cute way of referencing that. But I talk about the mistakes, that I talk about the lessons that my mother and father, high school graduates, God bless them both, but they were no nonsense and they worked hard to make sure that the five of us kids would have a better future than them. And so many of us have grown up that way. And I just want to make certain that I'm paying homage to what they've done and to represent them well. My mother was only 5'5". Five, five. She was a homemaker. My dad worked two and three jobs. But hey, Kwame, my mother, and we've all heard this expression before. Mama said, look, young man, don't ever think about disrespecting me because in her vernacular, I've born you in the world and I can take you <laughs> out. So you know it. You know it well. Hey, absolutely. And uh, I think you referenced your mom as the, the sergeant in the book or something like that. You read the uh, book well. She was and still is in my mind the sergeant. You know, she was all about doing things the right way. And even when it came time that after I indicated to Harvard, they blessed me to relieve the recruiting pressure to let me know that I had been accepted into the school. And two weeks after that, John Wooden of UCLA fame, he of the 10 national championships, sent a letter saying, hey, we'd like to have you come take a look at UCLA. We're interested in you. I told my mother, I said, Mom, I got a letter from UCLA. I've got to go out there and take a visit. She said, humorously, you don't got to go nowhere. You gave your word to Harvard, and I'm just adding yeast to the story because she didn't say it that way, but she made the point. You shook hands with them. Your word is your bond, and you will stick by it. And all these years later, I can say she was absolutely right, and I'd make the same decision back then, the same decision as I would now. Absolutely. Well, you look, you, you make Washington, D.C. proud. There are a lot of young people that, that, are, that are here now, that are growing up, that I want to make sure they understand. One, go get the book, right? You know, the road, I always, always get the name, right? The Road of a Lifetime. Uh, go get the book from my good friend. It's on the screen. Go get it. Pick it up. People are sitting at home. They're talking about their reading. Why not read my good friend's book, A Road of a Lifetime? It will change and inspire your life. But more importantly, a native Washingtonian, someone that, you know, grew up in the city, went to Harvard, and is making us proud every time we uh, turn on uh, anything that has to do with sports, but more importantly, I see you now doing other stuff on CBS, three-time Emmy Award winner, and my good friend, and just a really good man of faith. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Please tell the family I said hello, and our prayers continue to be with you and your family during this corona epidemic. Hey, and Kwame, let me just say thank you so much for having me on. I have admired you. And you know what? We all get knocked down in life, but to get back up and pursue it is what's awesome. You know, I have been a friend, will continue to be a friend. And I thank God for what I'm seeing in you, Kwame. So continue success. And I'm here to be a brother and a brother in Christ to cheer you on as well. I wanted to say you had a piece that you talked about and someone asked you to go. One, Petey Green is Petey Green, right? And I heard he was good <laughs> friends with your dad. And, and, and you knew your dad, and I, I liked you. I didn't know that, but I knew for some reason why I liked you even more outside of your faith. But you said something that touched me. And being someone of faith, this is something that was called to do. I would not have woke up and did this on my own. 
right? I just, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have never thought of creating this on my own. And you, you, someone asked you about going to interview. I can't remember the whole story at Channel 9 or somewhere DC TV or was an opening or something. And you said, hey, why, you know, I don't, I'm not qualified for that. And they said, you had a, somebody, you had a college degree, so if you had a college degree, you qualified for it. And mm. you, you went for it. And I just want you to know how that inspired me to go for it. And, and you know, was Petey Green, as you said, so many times people think that the best advice has come from somebody, a word that Petey Green might use from some big muckety-muck. Petey Green had a heart. He was one who bounced back from a number of trials and tribulations and challenges, and he went for it. He had a huge heart for those in Washington, D.C., especially for those who many people would not give an opportunity. Peter Green was one of the best at that, and he was a huge motivation in my life in that regard, and I'm proud to give him props for that because he cared for people. He also understood you know, what his weaknesses were. He said that he would never run for public office because he says every man's got a price and I'm not going to do that. You know, he was honest with himself, yeah. but encouraged everybody out there on the streets. He said, I'll tell it to the hot, I'll tell it to the cold, I'll tell it to the young, I'll tell it to the old. And you know the rest. But that was Petey Green speaking honesty, speaking truth to power and helping so many. Yeah. Kwame, I know, you know, from the first time I met you, man, I, I was impressed. I mean, this, you know, handsome, bright, you know, caring, um, um, up and comer. You know, I want to do that. And I know the Lord has given you a lot of gifts and awfully bright. I like to play a small role in that, my brother. Yeah, and Kwame, I believe you're going to knock him alive. So I'm proud to be there with you and oh, man, whatever thank, I can. Thank you. I'm with you, my brother. Thank you, my good friend, James. Appreciate it. Love you, man. For those that are watching and there, people are giving them advice and they wonder, should they take it? Sometimes you have to trust God and go do it. If it's always real talk, you know it's going to be real.